mass incarceration were the solution, we'd be safe now. There would be no crime. We would have no problems. We incarcerate more people than China and Russia, and we still aren't there. It's so clearly, after you've sunk billions of dollars into a policy position, maybe you need to think this hasn't worked. Hi everyone, this is Christopher Marte, New York City Council Member representing Lower Manhattan and welcome to The Hardest Up. The Hardest Up is a podcast about second chances and redemptions, people who took that turn and hopefully corrected their lifestyle. It's produced by The Lost Debate. Today we have an amazing guest named Alexandra Bailey who works for The Sentencing Project. She does a lot of organizing and activism to change state law. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Of course. We're glad to have you here. Let's just jump into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and kind of the evolution. Well, my name is Alexandra Bailey. I am the campaign strategist for the Campaign to End Life Imprisonment at The Sentencing Project. I've been in CJ reform and electoral work for the vast majority of, of my career, but my story kind of goes back a, a bit further than that. Um, when one of my family members, when he was uh, very young, was given a life sentence in a deep Southern state. And my grandmother, who's my personal hero um, and is, you know, an absolute legend, who's from Tunica, Louisiana, she, she worked really hard her entire life to make sure that particularly the Black men of her family were not going to be justice involved and the sadness that she felt and feels um, having lost one of her chickens sort of, I think, planted the seed. And then as, uh, as I grew up and watched more and more people I know get sucked into the justice system, become justice involved in all sorts of different ways and for all sorts of different reasons, it really just became clear to me that um, this was the avenue that I was supposed to fight. I actually lived in Chicago for a number of years. I worked for the Methodist Church at that time, and I was running homeless ministries. And I remember just the cycle in and out of jail and prison for the people that I was working with on poverty-based offenses, on mental health-based offenses, on addiction-based offenses. And it just became very clear to me that uh, we have picked up all the wrong tools to address this. So when the sentencing project offered me this position, I jumped. Yeah. And you left Chicago and moved to DC, right? Yes, I'm originally from the district. I moved to Chicago and then I came back. But okay. Chicago is definitely, uh, definitely my second home. Awesome. Awesome. So what was it like? You know, you've been doing a lot of criminal justice work before, as you mentioned, and then you get invited to pretty much the organization that was the trailblazer in leading a lot of this criminal justice reform movement. Did you feel like you fit right in or was it like a huge culture shock in, in being this organization? Well, it was funny because the sentencing project was run by Mark Maurer for pretty much all of its history. And just as I came on board, we got a new executive director in Amy Fedick, who has really taken an already incredible institution and really sort of given it like a really great next chapter. And she was very focused on sort of what I did um, and what I wanted to do, which was to take the incredible research that the Sentencing Project was putting out there in the world that really highlighted the problem and made very concrete solutions. And I wanted to put these into law form, 
pass them through legislatures and really go after the repeal of things that this incredible body of work had identified. I always say that our researchers are the best electoral targeters ever. They really tell you what the problem is, what the impact is going to be, and it just lays out just a perfect runway of what you're supposed to be doing. So when I joined about 18 months ago, it was just, uh, I felt like I slid right in and they've been dealing with my crazy ever since. (laughs) Uh, Most of our listeners aren't organizers or full-time activists. Can you tell us a little bit about your day-to-day and how do you create change? Yeah, so I was very fortunate to train under Marshall Gans, who really has this fabulous curriculum that really shows the history of how political change, social change has happened. And organized people are the thing that beat organized money and organized power. It is the only thing that ever has. And a community being able to take what it has, even if that is very little, and turn it into the power that it needs in order to get things done. And the privilege that I now come to the table with after years of being that organizer who, you know, the late night meetings after work, meeting people where they are, highlighting the problem, talking about the solutions that we want and applying pressure onto the system through various means that can be electoral, it can be financial, it can be reputational risk, and really taking that people power and turning it into to what we want to see. And now at the sentencing project, you know, I have the, the privilege to have the resources to put my shoulder to the wheel to fight mass incarceration. Wow. Can you give us a, you know, an example of a policy that you led and were able to pass through a state legislature and finally realize it? Prior to coming to the sentencing project, I was with ACLU National. And my focus at that time was to take action against bad electoral actors with a particular focus on people who have outsized unilateral power in our system, DAs and sheriffs being my primary focuses. Sheriffs are the ones that they run the jails um, and jail is where a lot of people lose their life, their livelihood. And so having the right sheriffs in place is really important. And DAs, I mean, they have an incredible amount of power and having better DAs was part of the focus. But then I just realized that um, this was never going to come down to just one actor. This was a a much larger problem that I wanted to try to get at. So the sentencing project, we're focusing in our extreme sentencing campaign around three areas of work for 2023. One is second look legislation that allows second chances to people who are extremely, who are, have extreme sentences. The second is domestic violence survivor justice acts to allow a new legal standard for people who have survived abuse and that has caused their criminalization. The third is felony murder, which if you want to get into that conversation, but felony murder is, uh, is really like one of the major rots in our system. So... Yeah, you know, I'm a city council member representing Lower Manhattan. And as we were discussing before you joined the podcast, like New York State and New York City have both extremes, right? We have some of the worst criminal justice laws. And then some of the, there is some movement, even with some of our DAs, you know, we have Alvin Bragg, who's Mm -hmm. kind of been able to like hold the line, especially on bail reform and, and some other measures. But can you give us your opinion of where New York State currently is and and what it needs to do to kind of be more of a leader, at least to catch up to some of the other more progressive states? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the moment where I want to give a shout out to Communities Not Cages and Rap and Nightclue and the Bronx Defenders and all of the incredible uh, partners that we've had on the three bills that we're proposing in New York State. And I really, New York advocates are just I have the privilege of meeting advocates all across the country, but New York advocates, I mean, they really do it right. So when I came to the table and they were looking at a second look bill, they decided they were going to do the best second look bill in the country and uh, darn it if they're, if they're not there. So second look is a mechanism whereby after having served a decade... <laughs> 10 years in prison, you are permitted to apply to your sentencing judge to have a reconsideration of your sentence. Basically to say, I've spent a decade in prison. During that time, I have come to a different place and I can be home and do what I need to do. And then the repeal of mandatory minimums. I mean, you and I were talking before the show during the Rockefeller drug era, they really put in mandatory minimums that devastated communities. And so New York is seen as this liberal bastion. But in fact, a lot of the policies that still exist are either regressive or nowhere near as progressive as they should be. Um, New York also has a huge aging population of people serving extreme sentences. And it doesn't make sense to continue to warehouse them. This is also where Second Look comes in. And then with the repeal of solitary confinement, there actually was this complaint that I heard about recently coming from departments of corrections basically saying, well, we can't put people in solitary confinement to punish them for not doing the programming that we want them to do. To which we were like, okay, well, why don't you offer them credits for all the good things you do? Time comes off of your sentence. It, like, Why don't we use a carrot rather than a stick? And that is about the establishment of earned credit, which is also a bill that all of these partners have come together to propose to the state legislature. So, I mean, New York's uh, state is on a good path, and I'm really hopeful that your legislature really looks at these bills and, and takes them the distance. Yeah, I hope so, too. You know, I think the past few years before pretty much the pandemic, I feel like we're doing so well. And then I think once the pandemic hit, there's been a huge narrative, more conservative narrative that's taken over in New York State and New York City. And we're starting to see a lot more obstacles in the push to kind of change the whole system. But we can only hope we can only continue organizing, continue fighting. You mentioned the Rockefeller laws. You know, my brother, he was initially convicted for 24 years. And when he was on Rikers Island, they repealed some uh, a portion of the law and they moved his sentencing down to 12 years. And eventually he only did a few years, but it really shows how drastic that is. Imagine for my brother who was sentenced as a kingpin to do 24 years at the age of around 23. You're coming out when you're around 45 or 50. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some people don't have the luck that he did, that he was able to, while he was in Rikers waiting for his date on, in trial for the law to change. And so I think what I want to ask you next is like, how long do you think some of these fights take? And from your experience and from the experience of the sentencing projects, where have you seen the quickest battles won and, and the longer battles still fighting for the arc of justice is long. There's just no question about that. But what I have seen is more of an understanding, even from what would be considered sort of the most conservative 
parts of the country. I've met uh, legislators who truly are sort of, um, who would consider themselves, and I think would wear very proudly, like, you know, the bastion of conservatism, say, that makes sense. That's not what we meant that law to do. I didn't know that this is what has happened as a result of this. And so with all of the information that we're equipped with now, because of how many years the Sentencing Project and other organizations like it have been tracking this, is that we know how much this is costing from a human perspective. We know how much this is costing from a social perspective. We know how much this is costing from a fiscal perspective. And the system has grown so large and so easy to be sucked into that I just watched legislators go, how on earth is that person serving for this? Like, I'll, I'll tell you a story real quick. One of my really good friends, Susan Brown, she's serving a life without the possibility parole sentence in Michigan. Why is she serving that sentence? She, long story short, she was attacked by an abusive former partner while she was pregnant. She was stabbed in her pregnant stomach by him, sexually assaulted, and in the ensuing struggle, she killed him, and she's serving an LWOP sentence. Wow. And when I take that story before the state legislature, and I'm like, this is what the lack of investment in public defense has brought you. Are you okay with that? And I'm very pleased to see that more and more the answer is becoming no. And so I think we're at a critical moment to really sort of lean into this and to not allow ourselves to be drawn back into old narratives that are failed policies that we have sunk billions of dollars and millions of lives into. The sentencing project, I feel like the first thing they wanted to do was collect data. As you said, mm. like how much this is costing, not only in lives, but financially and how it's affecting other parts of our society. Can you tell us some of the data points or success stories when it comes to the sentencing project? Well, that goes back a long way. And maybe I'll send some of our, our longtime researchers your way to talk about that one. But I can say that even just since I've been at the Sentencing Project, uh, Nazgul Gandush, who's our senior researcher, has written the definitive report on felony murder, where you go to jail often in most states for life for having been present at the commission of a crime, not even to have committed it yourself. We had an incredible report that came out from our Youth Justice Division recently, which showed that youth crime has not risen during the pandemic, despite every talking point that you see on the news. Together with my colleagues, Ashley Nellis and Liz Komar, who's our internal attorney, we're writing a report on domestic violence survivor justice acts and putting together model legislation to talk about how abuse and trauma so frequently play into, and gender so frequently play into extreme sentencing, and our lack of understanding and ability to interpret our understanding around trauma into legal statutes has really made it so that we have criminalized people that this system, any day of the week, would hold its hand up and say, those are the people I protect. And it's not. So for the last 30 years, this type of research is what has been coming out of the Sentencing Project. Our report on uh, life without the possibility of parole and elder parole really was one, I think, more one of the more disturbing reports that I read of, of just really elderly people being left to languish in prison. But go to sentencingproject.org. It's all there. <laughs> and, and what do you think the biggest obstacle is? Do you think it's 
education? Do you think it's profit? Where do you see is like the biggest thing that we have to eliminate for us to really change as a, as a country? I think that's, that's a difficult thing to answer, you know, because it, it, that's a complex answer. But I think we have a reliance on mass incarceration and we've sunk so much money into it that we're trying to get this ROI that doesn't exist. And so we continue to perpetuate it. And mass incarceration has managed to become sort of the ground zero around sexism, racism, the history of, of slavery, the, the making money off of what are predominantly black and brown bodies, the criminalization of women simply for surviving domestic violence, the uh, incarceration of LGBTQ plus individuals, a complete misunderstanding of trauma and what it brings to us. I think education, yes, I think we need a paradigm shift, and I think we need to start thinking very, very hard about how we are going to, A, undo the harm that we've done, and B, what policy position we're going to put in its place. But, I mean, mass incarceration, I think, really is, is driven by this falsehood that you can punish your way into accountability and out of crime, and you can't. That's not how it works. Desperation is your driver, and you've picked up the wrong tool to address that. Wow. You know, I feel like a few years ago, many folks weren't even talking about criminal justice reform. And I think post-Black Lives Matter movement, uh, even the Women's March, there's been like a huge openness to talk about it, to go on Instagram and post about it. We've interviewed someone who was formerly incarcerated and he talks about his experiences on TikTok about it. Do you see this level of excitement through the data as well or through some of the research you do? Or is this kind of like just surface level things that we just see on our phones? There is more understanding, I think, than there's ever been of what the problem is. And I think we have more ways to communicate than we've ever had. So I think that that's a natural driver. I think the thing that I see in my day-to-day -day work that really drives me on is how many family members email or send letters to the sentencing project from their loved ones, from all across the country. And what I see is different races, different age brackets, different genders, different gender identities, you name it, that have been sucked into this system. And really what I see is the blast radius. Yeah. You take that one person and a whole family and therefore a whole neighborhood, a whole community has somehow also been sucked into this void. And I think we've this, I mean, we're the world's leading incarcerator. And so the blast radius across the country now is such that everyone I know knows someone who has been to jail or prison. Yeah. And in sometimes in extreme cases, for all sorts of reasons, writ large. So when the system has touched this many lives, I think really what's happening is that now all those people can talk to each other. But if there are 2.2 whatever million people in the system and all of those people have at least one person, everybody obviously has more than that. You're looking at massive numbers. So, and now all of those people can get on TikTok and, and talk about the, the particularly terrible thing that happened to them. So now I feel that it's everyone, like this, like everything touching due to communication 
but the problem being so big is actually the driver. Yeah, I can relate with you a lot. I remember when my brother first opened up Combody and he had his first media clip. I think it was like Bloomberg News just came in and did a quick interview. Every week we would get hundreds of letters about people saying, hey, can I can I work for Combody? Can I volunteer? Oh, can you show me what you did inside your workout routine? Like, I want to do something similar. And it just shows that, that the, the access to communication, that access to information is, is so great now. And I think that's definitely changing how we all interact with people yeah. who are incarcerated, people who are formerly incarcerated, and, and also the activists that are, that are trying to change that equation, which you know now we kind of see organizations popping up throughout the country. And do you think the Sentencing Project's mission and kind of like the work they do has changed because now there's so many organizations or you're kind of staying true to, you know, to your butter, to the work that got you here? I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I mean, quite frankly, I think that the sentencing project was sort of on the job before everybody knew there was a job and we're going to continue to be on the job um, as we have been. And I think we're just going to use every tool in the toolbox to address the harms of this system. And, you know, we definitely put out the data that that really shows what this system is doing. Um, and, you know, we have incredible partners all across the country, both on the advocacy side and the research side, um, you know, and the funding side who have all sat up and gone, I read your report. What are we going to do about this? And that's where, you know, I get the great job of going, well, how about this? But the fact that your your brother has sentencing project stuff on the wall of Con Body is like literally like my favorite fact of all time now. <laughs> yeah, every every inch of the gym, you you see another graph, another chart, both what's happening in New York State and and throughout the country. Like, there's no way you could go in that gym where you won't learn something. Which is, I'm really proud of him for even taking on that initiative and not only having the story of having people get fitness uh, with someone who was formerly incarcerated, but to educate them while they do their burpees or, or their right. jumping jacks, right? Uh, you can do two things at once, right? Absolutely. But I think also, you know, to your earlier point, I think that there's this really fabulous moment happening where our ability to communicate with each other across all of these mediums has made so many people so incredibly brave of coming forward with their story from surviving crime to say, to then say, I don't want mass incarceration as a solution. That's not the solution that I want to what I've experienced. And people who've gone through this system being able to come out and being like, I know that this is what you thought the system was supposed to be, but this is actually what it did to me. And the bravery to share those stories and the speed with which we can share those stories, I think has made a massive difference in the movement. That's incredible. Well, we're joined by the man himself, Costa Boss Marte. Yeah. So one thing I started putting is infographics on all the stats that your team has about one in three black men being incarcerated, one in six Latino men being incarcerated and so on and so forth. I think it's one in 116 white women will be incarcerated, you know? And so putting that information there because our, our clients that come in into our studio have no idea what the differences is from them to us. And so when they come in, they just think they're gonna come to a novelty studio and get a just a just a workout. But when we have all these infographics around the the walls, it's like, oh wow, 
they're in the locker room and they're just reading, you know, they, they're in a, the toilet and they, they're seeing information there. So it's really educating them what inequities are in, in the criminal justice system. And so I think it's extremely important for us to put that in their faces and see, you know, really educate our clientele base. Well, it's fabulous to have you home and what a fabulous mission. I'm so glad that the sentencing project uh, could, could help with those wall decals. I can't think of a better wall decal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, I'll have to post it and tag you guys. And please do next time you put one up. Please take photos and tag us. I absolutely love this. You know, and it's interesting because my father, when I was growing up, he ran a temporary staffing agency, um, and he was one of the only people around who would hire people who had just returned home from prison. And I remember, like, people just had so much prejudice against people who were returning. They were treated so poorly. And I remember like one of my formative experiences as a little girl, um, my dad was a single parent. So if I wanted to hang out with him, I had to go to work with him. Right. So like (laughs) I learned how to like answer the phones and take memos so like I could be useful, make my little $10 a week, thought I was the wealthiest woman ever um, (laughs) at like six. (laughs) But, you know, even like the news had conditioned me into thinking like some people were good and some people were bad. And I remember I was like, I had this file I was supposed to bring him. And I I said to him, I was like, dad, I think this person has like done something bad. And I remember he just sat back and he looked at me and he goes, you are going to go hire them. They've paid their penance to society and we welcome home every single person. That's what we do here. Go give them a W-2 form. And I was like, got it. And my uncles still run that business to this day. And people, when they come home, they know to call my family. So I guess uh, this is uh, just a mission of my family, too. So it's it's kind of yeah. cool to be with another family that's doing the same thing. Yeah, and, re- and really changing the perception of what, you know, formerly incarcerated and bringing those two audiences in one space. You know, and that's thanks to all the information that we get from your team and all the infographics, I think that makes a huge amount of difference when they come in and they just have this one notion mind that they're just gonna come in and get a, a, a workout or they saw me on the Housewives and you know they're gonna come take an Instagram post on, on the mugshot wall and then they see all this information and I think it's incredible. They're greeted when they come in the doors by somebody that's been you know 20 years, 10 years in the system and, and and they're like, wow, you, you've been locked up? Because they're, they're used to seeing somebody in the news or seeing somebody in these a shows that they have to be all tatted and they have to be, you know, furious and locked up caged animals. And so the, the perception goes a long way. I mean, those perceptions and so much of what's portrayed in the media um, is just so incredibly harmful. Um, I mean, you found a very clever way to combat it, but I would love to talk to you sometime about how we do that at a larger scale, because the concept of, of what people think most people go to prison for versus what most people go to prison for and what they think about people's inability to change or grow always is staggering to me. Absolutely. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more of uh, outside of the research? Uh, what type of what type of events do you guys host, or or other actions that you take as an organization? Yeah, what well, what does activism look like? Oh, well, activism looks like a lot of things, but the thing that I focus on is strengthening 
grassroots movement of taking the privilege of a national organization and taking it back to the ground, the people who have been fighting this in their state day in and day out. So I was telling um, that New York State has three really exciting bills coming up. Shout out to Communities Not Cages again, the establishment of earn time, second look and the repeal of mandatory minimums. And, you know, these three bills, um, along with the RAP Elder Parole Bill, are really going to put a massive dent into New York State's lesser decisions around incarceration. And so for me, activism, it starts with the stories. It starts with storytelling. It starts with building community. It's taking all of our collective resources to apply pressure to get what it is that we want um, from this system and to pass laws and also to have communities of people that want these laws to stay in place. They don't want to go back to this regressive lock them up, lock them up longer mentality that is a failed policy position. If cops and prisons kept us safe, this would be the safest place on earth. Instead, we're just the world's leading incarcerator. Yeah. Can you tell us one of those stories that you use or like a story that you continue to, to reference to when you, when you talk to, to folks? Oh God, there are so many, but you know, I, I, I think I'll also, I'll use this opportunity to give a shout out to my friend, Jamie Mead. So we're working on a second look bill in Michigan. Jamie is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole based on felony murder, which comes with an LWAP sentence. He's been in for over 20 years, and uh, he actually got accepted to the Chicago Theological Seminary for a master's degree. And I actually talked to the heads of that program, and I said, you know, turning a master's degree program into something that's MDOC compliant is one hell of a task. Like, why did you decide, like, why did you make that decision? And they said, well, Jamie's such an extraordinary person. How could we have not done that? And this is somebody who went to prison as a kid. He's in his 40s. He leads um, the National Lifers Association in Michigan. He writes some of the best newsletters you've ever, you've ever read. He's going to be an ordained minister. And yet we've decided based completely in a completely counterfactual, counter-evidence way to continue to incarcerate him for the rest of his life. And these stories just exist all over the place. I just hear them again and again and again. April Wilkinson, woman from Oklahoma. She is stalked sexually assaulted um, and repeatedly harmed in a multitude of ways by a former partner who in the end drags her down to his basement and tortures her for hours. She is so badass that she wrestles his gun off of him. She's handcuffed when she does this, kills him, and she is serving a life sentence in Oklahoma for defending herself after she's been drugged to a basement. These miscarriages of justice really have to stop. And so we're spending all of our time and energy trying to pass laws to bring these people home. And have you passed a law like in Oklahoma to bring her back home or is she still there? Not yet. We just got it introduced. So, but I will keep you all updated and I hope you all will help us out. Support Oklahoma Appleseed. Her attorneys and our partners there are really incredible. And they're really sort of um, uplifting the fact that Oklahoma is the leading mass incarcerator of, of women. I think Idaho took their title by six women. But um, they put women in prison for crazy reasons. Um, like if your kid gets hurt, 
while you're trying to survive a DV situation, you'll go to jail for something called failure to protect. There are women who are serving 30 years life sentences because their kid got hurt while they were fighting for their life. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Yeah. Insane. Insane. So we're working on it. <laughs> Do you think it makes it more difficult now with everybody, you know, saying we have to fight crime and think, and crime is getting worse and, and this whole political movement to change that perception of, you know, allowing these individuals to receive a second chance? Do you get any like backlash? Yeah, of course we do. But also it's one of these things where the Sentencing Project, we're a research-based organization. And if one had anything to do with the other, I guarantee you that Nazgul Gandush and Ashley Nellis would have found that correlation and would have written at least six reports about it by now. Mm -hmm. But what all of our reports tell you, and in, in many cases tell you definitively, is that it's like taking paper towels to fight a fire. Mm. You've got completely the wrong tool to handle the situation that you're dealing with. We've just come through a pandemic a massive social upheaval that has left people desperate, homeless, in struggles to, to such an incredible extent. And we're not looking at poverty, education, mental health, trauma, how we can get in front of trauma. We just decided we're going to take traumatic people we're going to lock them in a tiny box, and then we're going to expect them to come home whole. It's just not logical. I agree. You know, I get stopped almost every single day saying, oh, crime is going crazy in Washington Square Park, which I represent. Oh, the homeless population is astronomical. And I just tell folks, I'm like, for the past two years, anyone who needed services you know, whether you're on the edge or whether you just would go into your therapist on a weekly basis. Imagine not having access to that for two years. Imagine not having anyone to talk to for two years. And now coming out of it, are we supposed to all be normal? Completely no, right? It's not going to come back. You know, everyone wants New York to bounce back as quickly as possible. But that's not going to happen until our most vulnerable are taken care of. And until we can help them get back and not to the old normal, but to a new normal where we actually have those services to give them in the first place. And so, you know, it is hard pushing back against this narrative because now people say nationwide crime is up again. And, you know, you always heard that New York City's back to the 70s. You know, I, I will I will send you the fact sheets that show that that is not true. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I'm actually, so when I'm not at the sentencing project, I'm a commissioner in Washington, D.C. Um, and D.C. is a small place. I only represent a little under 3,000 people, which is not a, a huge population of folks. But I also chair public safety. And like you, you know, I had this massive issue around people who were unhoused during the pandemic. And I was like, well, I'm going to work on getting them housing then, because that's how I actually solved this problem. Now, that is the longer more difficult process, but it also is the permanent solution. So what do you want to do? Push them around and have the same problem in six months? Or do you actually want to get in the business of doing the right hard thing? And I say to legislators all across the country, there is no shame 
in thinking that this policy position was going to address the problem, it didn't, and deciding to pivot to another policy position that's going to be more effective. You learn and grow and do better as you know more. The crime for me is when you know better and you don't do better. You are here to solve hard problems. That's why people elected you. And so the cheap shots don't work anymore. Like I said, if mass incarceration were the solution, we'd be safe now. There would be no crime. We would have no problems. We incarcerate more people than China and Russia, and we still aren't there. It's So clearly, after you've sunk billions of dollars into a policy position, maybe you need to think, this hasn't worked. Folks always tell us that we have to look at the Nordic model, right? That the answers Mm. for criminal justice reform is in Scandinavian countries, it's in Germany. But do you have an example of a city or state that's doing it the best here in America? No. No? Okay. (laughs) Quick answer. (laughs) (laughs) No. No. All right. Um, Every state and, and region of the country has its own problematic traditions around mass incarceration. So some states, don't get me wrong, have higher numbers than other because they're a bigger state. But Michigan has never had the death penalty, but they have one of the highest life without the possibility of parole populations in the country, one of the highest felony murder populations in the country. So they did this one thing right and then did this whole other thing that's, you know, really problematic. New York State, seen in so many ways as as the bastion of progressive movement, you know, and yet the, the Rockefeller drug laws are alive and well and up for consideration this legislative session. So I think that there are the states that get notorious reputations, and I think there are states that have reputations that allow them to fly under the radar. All I can say is that I am yet to be satisfied. There's nowhere I'm like, okay, we're good. I'm moving to that state. (laughs) Yeah, but I I think I agree with you, but I think there's more of a conversation going on today than five, 10 years ago. There's more, yeah, there's more, there's more programs going inside. Like we at Combody, we go inside Rikers Island and train the inmates there to become certified trainers, to, to even move and have some mental health and regular health awareness. For me, when I was in Rikers Island sitting there 10, almost 15 years ago, nobody was coming in. <laughs> there was no programs. There was nobody saying that our lives matter. You know, it yeah. was, it, and so I think there is, we're taking that step and it's, and it's taken a very long time, but there's so much more work to do. Also, I'm, I'm not, I'm never the one to ask. I'm never satisfied. Um, that's why I'm a campaign strategist. I literally have made a career out of not being satisfied uh, when it comes to reform. We have taken massive steps forward. That is completely true. But also, I put a lot of that down to the people who've come home, the exonerees, their family members who have served sentences too. And, you know, they spent 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, their whole lives talking about what happened to their loved one and, you know, not allowing people to forget. I think all credit and blessings is always due to them. What do you think second chances look like? 
Oof, I mean, a lot of things. Um, I can just say from a from a legislative point of view, it's allowing a legal avenue for people to actually show rehabilitation and to come home. Extreme sentences take that opportunity out of the system. And that's really what I spend a lot of my time fighting. And one of the things that gets said to me all the time is that, well, finality is what people want when it comes to punishment. And I'm a survivor of of violent crime twice in my life. And I always just look them dead in their face. And I'm like, really? Because that's not what I want or wanted. I was like, you know, but you don't mention people like me who come up to you and say like, no, that's not what I want to happen as a survivor of violent crime. Incarceration is not the thing that's going to make me or my community safer. My community has been through generations of trauma, of disinvestment, that's that's what I need addressed, not you taking members from my community and locking them up for forever. But that narrative often is silenced in order to maintain the status quo's talking points. Yeah. So most of our listeners can't be full-time organizers and activists, but you know, if they do want to contribute and help, what can they do? even for a few hours a day or a few hours a week? Well, they should go to Con Body and look at the wall. <laughs> That's what I tell them. Learn some things. Mm-hmm. Um, no, uh, they can visit us at thesentencingproject.org. We do have a monthly community meeting with organizers from all over the country where you can see really sort of the best and the brightest, the most incredible people who are working on this issue. We're involved in a lot of different state-based campaigns. So where I can, I certainly will connect you with state organizers. But you know, the thing is, is that um, everybody has extraordinary talents and I've, I've watched them blossom when they come into coalition spaces and really find a part of the movement that's their own. And so I would just encourage you to learn about the problem. If you can't make it to the gym, you can, you can go to sentencingproject.org to see the data. You can reach out to me at abailey at sentencingproject.org. And I will definitely try to connect you. But reach out into your community. Talk to directly impacted people. Find out what they're asking for, what they want you to support. And, you know, just start doing that thing. And you'll watch an activism career just take off. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on here. And thank you so much for the work you and the sentencing project does and have been doing for decades. Hopefully our listeners will go to your website and start supporting because we need everyone to really jump on board with this. Absolutely. This is the the all hands on deck moment. And thank you so much for having me. I uh, can't wait till I'm back in uh, in New York. I'm definitely going to come and do a workout. Absolutely. Thank you, Alexandra. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for being on The Hardest Up. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Hardest Step. And I'm your host, Koss. And I'm your host, Chris. To hear more stories like this one, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We drop new episodes every Wednesday. We'll see you next week. Special thanks to our producers, Monica and Moyo. Moyo.